I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today, where we address current and future issues in law enforcement forensic and crime scene investigations. I'm your host, Dan Zentek. Today, we have Dr. Lawrence Simon joining us on the show. Uh, Dr. Simon has interviewed uh, many serial killers and violent offenders and is full-time instructor traveling all over the world to speak to law enforcement, social services, medical, and forensic professionals. Before he was a full-time instructor, he spent over a decade in forensic settings interviewing dangerous men in the country, including inmates housed on death row. Dr. Simon <coughs> been sought after by forensic and law enforcement professionals to evaluate and analyze complex major crimes. He's been a vital member of major cold case task force assisting investigators on high profile serial homicides. He's also an author of well-known books, Murder by Numbers, Perspectives of Sexual Serial Sexual Violence and Mortal Desire, Origins of Sexual Violence. Dr. Simon, thank you for joining us today. Hey, my, my pleasure. My pleasure, Dan. Thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Simon, I got to see your presentation when I was at the IAI, and I just uh, really appreciate you sharing the information. You've spent many years uh, practicing uh, your art, which is uh, interviewing some uh, very, what we would consider strange or, or deviant individuals uh, that, but it's also, uh, you know, it seems strange, but uh, it takes up a lot of uh news shows. It takes up a lot of uh, media and movies and everything. It appears that the American public, uh, I guess just in general, people are interested in what we do. And I know when I've been teaching uh, detectives and stuff, the one question that always comes up in these type of cases is the why. It's why someone would do this. And, and you know, uh, the analogy I would always give is that you know, you're trying to interpret them with your moral standards, with your things. You know, the fact is, you know, they killed them because they were in a blue car or because they had certain things. And, and that made sense to them. It doesn't make sense to us, but obviously you spent a lot of time with, uh, you know, serial killers and murderers and, and violent offenders and such. And, uh, I know that you had an opportunity to speak about some of these and I just uh, like some insight from you on, on some of the cases that you had and some of the, uh, I guess, conclusions in interviewing so many people and possibly uh, what drives this behavior and, and I guess, create sort of uh, this type of offender. When you're dealing with serial killers really as a whole, invariably you're, you're dealing with a very rare and dangerous offender uh, as the prominent motive in these cases is sex. Uh, you know, certainly their crimes are so grotesque as, as having the rare opportunity to listen to some of their fantasies as they have. Really, I, you know, for the most part, I can't not help but conclude that these are, are adult monsters under our bed. With the serial lust murder, as uh, they're sometimes referred to as the primary motive, as I said, is sex. Some of the commonalities that I've found in interviewing this population are indeed unique as much as their fantasy structure. And what I've found in, in pretty much all of them is deep-rooted in early childhood. So... Uh, you start to see these things early on. Um, you know, for example, with Dahmer, you know, he had collected roadkill and he became real fascinated with uh, uh, looking at these dead animals in biology class when they were dissecting fetal pigs. That was one of the things that he was really uh, interested in at that time. Also, a dead raccoon 
that uh, his father had uh, got from under the, you know, the, the gutter area in the house. And Downer, uh, you know, became extraordinarily interested in that as well. Uh, so, I mean, you know, and he's just one example, but I found, you know, in interviewing these guys myself, that they actually fuse section of sex and aggression uh, together, together at a very young age. And they start to associate basically sex with violence. And each time they masturbate, uh, it's sort of reinforcing their fantasies. And all that happens is, is as they get older into teens, uh, maybe even a little bit preteen, that these start to become obsessions, these fantasies. So... And some of the serial killers that, you know, most people are very familiar with, you know, one that stands out is Ed Gain. I know you brought him up at the seminar uh, in reference to so many movies uh, have been made off of uh, sort of his uh, crimes and things that he did. Uh, If you could sort of uh, talk about some of those. Yeah. And, you know, his, uh, you know, whole whole ordeal had that relationship with his mom. Uh, was, was uh, you know, very strange to say the least. Uh, you know, during uh, the, the bedtime stories, uh, you know, mom would refer to uh, women as the devil. And she kept on beating that word like a drum uh, with, you know, Ed Gein, the women of the devil, you can't trust women. And, and really, uh, you know, going back to possession, you know, Ed's whole goal, really, for the most part, was to possess mom, in a sense, become mom. And, uh, you know, what happened with him is, is that really mom and his brother really kept him in check once. And it was really considered that he killed his brother. I mean, he, uh, his brother ended up uh, you know, dying while they were out in the woods hunting. And uh, there was, it was found a gash uh, where it looked to be that his brother was hit in the head, but they deemed that he died of a heart attack. Uh, and, you know, of course, Ed never got charged for it. And what happened in Ed's mind at that time, certainly it would have been, uh, you, know, you know, that, hey, I, I got mom now. I'm, uh, mom is all mine. But unfortunately for, for Ed, his, his mother uh, had a stroke, and, you know, because she was so distraught of what happened to her son. And you know, she died shortly thereafter. And really, Mom and brother kept him in check because once mom and his brother had died, that's when he started really uh, enacting, you know, this, uh, you know, this years of where the movies really were generated. Uh, now it was thought that he actually uh, dug up his mom, and that's the movie Psycho with Norman Bates because Norman Bates, of course, is Ed Gein, and uh, they're trying to kind of get that uh, captured through Norman Bates where mom is upstairs in the bedroom, uh, but he actually couldn't get uh, mom. He couldn't dig her up. Uh, he wasn't, it was a type of stone that was in the ground, but, but Ed ended up digging up other women. He would look in the obituaries and then he would dig them up and he would essentially use their body parts to become mom, essentially. And, uh, you know, so that's the that's sort of the gist with him. And, you know, of course, uh, when we talk about the why, uh, 
you know, really, if you could figure out what emotional purpose it serves for each individual to do what it is that they do, then you've come one step closer to understanding that dynamic. For example, I mean, if, you know, you pick a serial killer like Ted Bundy. I mean, Ted Bundy's a, a pretty wide ranging, you know, you know, folks know about him. Uh, you know, he, he would kill women in a sense because he would perceive that they wouldn't want him. Uh, you know, so it's almost like a revenge against society. You know, you're looking at the different versions of why these guys, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, you know, because, you know, talking about him, you know, Dahmer essentially really didn't necessarily want to kill anyone. But, you know, as for him, he his whole uh, 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 trouble came whenever his victims wanted to leave. So, you know, he wanted a, a permanent companion. So, what he ended up doing is drilling holes in the temporal lobe and trying to create living zombies, pouring muriatic acid in the temporal lobe to create that uh, permanence. And that's actually started. And all of this starts. And here's the key. And, you know, just mentioning these three popular serial killers, because, you know, there's a lot of literature on them. We know quite a bit about them. The, the grand the grand whole idea about this is, is that this this begins during childhood. Now, people will talk about child abuse quite a bit. Now, child abuse is not a cause, certainly not. What it is is that trauma is perceptual. So essentially, these individuals do have difficulty. You know, nobody has a leave it to beaver, war cleaver is their dad. Nobody has that. We all have difficulties growing up. And trauma affects people differently. You see, what may be traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for another. We actually, you know, may see that in battle time where, where folks sometimes come back from the battlefield okay and some may not. So it's essentially like that where, you know, some of these serial murderers, when they're, when they're children, they suffer from pretty horrific type childhood. Some of them, some of them are horrific, some are not. You know, you, you'd say to yourself, well, okay, that, that may not be too bad for you. Because trauma is perceptual, so it affects us, you know, all differently uh, with that. Uh, but what happens is, at a very young age, sex and violence, particularly with the serial sex murderer, becomes fused. So sex and violence becomes fused. So they start to do uh, at very young ages sexual pryings and things like that, figuring out things. I'll give you an example, like Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, it was known that uh, the only interest Dahmer really had as a child is when uh, his father pulled a dead raccoon from underneath one of the, uh, and I don't know what you call it, but it, it, it's kind of like a underneath a gutter area. And Jeff's face sort of lit up like a, like a Christmas tree. And he became interested in these dead animals, uh, so much so that he even collected roadkill. And so what happened at a very young age, that interest, that intrigue, started to uh, get displaced, if you will, onto, uh, you know, other you know, people that he was interested in, with, which, of course, were men. And in particular, he was interested in sort of a Chippendale, which he actually called, it was actually referred to by him, a Chippendale male body type, someone that was you know, certainly built, that kind of thing. And he was always uh, interested in the insides of, uh, you know, the body. And that was his per se, his sexual interest. But his real motivation 
was that companionship. He did not want these men to leave. That's why the living zombies, that's why he was trying to create that. Matter of fact, his last uh, goal was to create a coffee table that was made out of his victim's skulls, which he never really had a chance to, to, to accomplish that. Now, would, would Dahmer try to kill his victims? I mean, was it when they wanted to leave? So Dahmer wasn't, uh, wasn't a socially uh, effective and outgoing as the other serial sex murderers are, like Bundy or Rodney Alcala. So really, he relied on drugging his victims. So now, once he had the victims in his lair or his kingdom, you know, wherever he was staying at, uh, he felt at ease and more comfortable socially as he fantasized about permanent companionship with the victims. Uh, so besides his first victim, Stephen Hicks, once the victims after Hicks were lured to, to, his, to his home, uh, the plan was to drug them because Dahmer knew at some point eventually they would want to leave. So this is why he tried to create these living zombies so the victims would essentially be his, uh, certainly barely alive because he's trying to create these zombies by pouring muriatic acid inside a temporal lobe. Naturally, you do this, you're going to end up dying. So, uh, But Dahmer's intent wasn't that. His intent was to create these living zombies so they can be under his commands, invariably like sex slaves. So the idea of this term, uh, which really is applicable to many of these serial sex murderers, is called possession. So uh, that's essentially what Dahmer really wanted. That was his, the final out outcome that he wanted. Um, you know, the problem is, is that with other serial sex murderers and Dahmer, they're, they're rarely satisfied uh, because of this intense, psych this intense psychological rush that it gives them each time they kill, each time Dahmer had created a zombie, he had a, a you know, he, he had an urge to go out and, and do more. I know the one thing that always stands out when people are talking about Ted Bundy is the fact that uh, socially uh, he seemed uh, charismatic, I guess, normal or otherwise, which uh, I guess always raises that concern back to the to the monster, right? Is that uh, how do you know when they all when they appear like Ted Bundy, when they appear to be a normal person in society? And uh, that, I guess, is sort of a difference that Dahmer was not really that charismatic type of person. Absolutely right, Dan. Dahmer was not as charismatic as a predator like Bundy and Alcala uh, or a Kemper. As a matter of fact, with um, Dahmer, Dahmer felt more comfortable when he was a kid, kind of be, being that class clown. So that's how he got attention. They actually called it in school because uh, he would pretend uh, having seizures in the middle of the class. And then the kids would say, ah, you're, you know, he's playing a Dahmer or he's playing a Dahmer. But this is how Dahmer, uh, in his own world, connected with people by being that sort of, uh, you know, that clown. And look, in reality, when he was out, he, he, he didn't feel as comfortable uh, like a Bundy. And depending on the predator, like a Bundy, an Alcala or, or a Kemper, usually don't know at all until it's too late. And that's why their victim count uh, was extraordinarily high. And Dahmer had a pretty high victim count of as well, but Dahmer was only as effective as he was because he was able to drug his unsuspecting victims in clubs. And he was phenomenal, probably better, just as good as any of these other serial killers like Bundy and Alcala and Kemper. He was excellent uh, in telling someone what they wanted to hear. 
uh, he was really able to talk himself out of being caught at least a few times. Um, one of the, you know, how effective he was at telling, telling what I mean by telling people what they want to hear, uh, his, his uh, neighbor allegedly had come over to help him clean up his house because his apartment, because he was going to be evicted a few times. And naturally, because of the smell was probably emanating from his apartment. So his, his, his neighbor had uh, volunteered to come over and help him out. And there was some blood that was on a part of the freezer. And the neighbor asked Jeff, what's all this blood, you know, here? What's, what, what is this? And Dahmer always had an answer for everything. His answer was that I went to the store, I bought a package of meat and I cut it with a knife and it accidentally kind of got all over the fridge and I didn't clean it up. I mean, he always had, you know, he had a, he always had a very good answer uh, for, for everything. So uh, that really uh, certainly helped him out as far as uh, uh, him uh, getting people in a, in, in a vulnerable state, even getting them back to his apartment, which you know was was you know was a little bit of a challenge that someone that doesn't have any kind of social acumen. But a guy like Bundy and a guy like Alcala and a guy like Kemper. These guys could seriously talk most people into their car today. That's how much charisma these guys, you know, had. They were able to uh, neutralize their threat better than anybody and get people in a vulnerable, in a vulnerable position without actually using uh, like a drug like Dahmer did to uh, render his victims comatose. Even Otis Tool, I mean, Otis Tool, uh, you know, the guy that ended up, uh, um, you know, traveling with Henry and Lucas, uh, he was described as having green teeth. So, you know, it's not, you know, you're, you're, he actually looked like he was, uh, uh, you know, strange. He was the one we all picture, right? He was the one you picture as a boogeyman you don't go get near, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and that's it. I mean, so you have some of these guys that, like you said, Richard Ramirez. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that aspect where these guys are not going to be uh, accomplished in getting their victims to a spot to where they can cause them harm. Like let's say a Bundy or Edmund Kemper. Um, and by the way, both Bundy and Edmund Kemper had IQs, you know, above 130. I mean, they were literally geniuses. So, you know, that also gives an advantage to these killers. And then you have, you have social intelligence and you have, uh, you have sort of the, uh, the, the, the academic type of intelligence and, and, you know, certainly, both of these guys had 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 enough to where they were able to uh, get many victims. Hey, we've talked about some famous, you know, serial killers, and, and most people have seen documentaries and all that. But I mean, you've interviewed, uh, I would guess, hundreds by now uh, of inmates that you know the general public don't know. I mean, they're not famous by name or anything. Uh, you know, what about some of those as far as that stand out to you? I mean, is there certainly someone that you've met? Uh, that you've talked to that, you know, just by nature was just uh, stood out in your memory out of the many that you've had? Well, Dan, yeah, there, there was actually a couple guys. Um, one of the guys, and actually both, have uh, decapitated their victims. And there was one guy uh, that was down in the basement uh, where I was interviewing him. And, and that's, I refer to as the basement because that's where some of the death row inmates, we, we would uh, go down there to do the interview and, and uh, you know, anything that they wanted to talk about, we'd take them out of the cell and then they'd come down there and we just, the death row inmate and myself would be down there. 
uh, the officers certainly would be outside the room. Sometimes I was down there so long that some of them would maybe go upstairs for you know a couple minutes or what have you. But uh, one one of the guys um, was uh, looking. He was staring at my my which looked to be my chest. And this guy decapitated men, women, and children. And uh, you know he's looking at my chest. And I thought it was my chest. I said, do I have like a piece of food on my chest? Why are you looking at it? He says, no, actually, I'm looking at your neck and I'm counting your heart rate. Uh, you know, so that guy kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. And I remember cutting the interview short because I do believe he was probably studying on uh, maybe what I would look like with my head on his lap. <laughs> Um, and then another guy had explained to me how he had uh, tried to have sexual intercourse with uh, the victim's head and would refer to the, um, the, the uh, you know, I don't remember, you know, certainly what, what it's called, the, the area the maybe, Dan, you, you know what it is, where, you know, you decapitate the head and then you have the sort of the, the veins or uh, that are kind of, you know, right there at the base of the, uh, you know, the neck, um, you know, he actually referred to it as wires. So he was trying to tell me that he was getting erect, but he was not able to get his, uh, uh, you know, genitals into the wires. So, I mean, that, that, that guy gave me the creeps as well. So there's just, uh, I mean, just telling you those two brief stories, um, those two killers that had decapitated their victims certainly did that. Well, and I know that that's something that you teach because I know you teach to law enforcement and you have, you know, two day classes you put on. And I know that that's something that uh, you talk about. I mean, if you're having a serial rapist, you're having uh, murders in the area, it's going back, checking call history, checking things that are in that area. And those are some of the things that you're, you're talking about for investigators. These serial killers, like anybody else that's committing, because these are sex offenders, they have multiple deviancies. And, you know, what you want to look for uh, is important is the uh, search uh, warrants. And when you go in there and you search a home, uh, you can start to see things that um, if that's perhaps your guy, uh, that you may start to see things in the home that are, you know, related to what you're actually investigating. And I caution folks all the time on this because people have pornography in their home. But if you remember the game hide and seek. I mean, it doesn't mean you actually did it. It just, it just means that you're getting warmer. Yeah, case in point, we had a, in the violent sex offender facility, the, you know, a lot of the people that are housed there under the uh, Jimmy Rice law, the Sexual Violent Predator Act, um, we had a guy there that uh, had underneath his pillow, it was a special article uh, on the epidemic of child abuse. Now, this guy had a history of, uh, sodomizing young boys. And he was in the facility because he had left a one and a half year old boy. He was sodomized and left him for dead in a construction pit. And the only reason why he didn't get the death penalty was because the boy had survived. When the detectives had executed the warrant and they went in to search, you know, the home underneath his pillow, he had this, uh, a bookmarked page that had this epidemic on child abuse. And there was a picture, very small picture of a, you know, about a two-year-old boy that was badly bruised and he was naked and covering sort of the, the, the 
issue, which was sponsoring this child abuse. And certainly, um, you know, you, you don't have to be a genius to think, hey, this guy's probably masturbating, you know, to this because it's underneath this pillow. It's bookmarked so he can get to that page that has the picture on it. You remember I talked in my class with regards to Ed Gein. Ed Gein would make uh, the body parts uh, that he had stolen from the grave site and also a couple of the victims that he had killed. Uh, he had made body parts. He had made uh, parts. Uh, he had made silverware uh, from the hands. Uh, you know, so uh, and he also had in his home World War II memorabilia. So these are things, again, I mean, a, a, another case that I had had where there was a young woman, she was found on a beach and she had a beer bottle inserted in the genital region. And then they searched the home and found that he had some blow up dolls as well as one of these real dolls, which the real dolls could cost anywhere between seven to $13,000. Uh, he had a couple of those as well, but he had uh, mostly blow up dolls. And in one of the, uh, the dolls, the expensive dolls, the there was a bottle, it wasn't a beer bottle, um, but it was, a, it was a, a Pepsi bottle that was inserted in the doll's genital region. So when you're investigating these cases, you know, we know that you just don't have so many coincidences. And, uh, you know, certainly that's, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, that we do look for. And, and certainly the multiple deviancies, uh, Leonard Lake, Leonard Lake, uh, you know, he was fired uh, from a gas station uh, because he was, he drilled a hole in the, in the girl's restroom and, and was peeping. And uh, uh, Russell Williams, the Canadian serial killer, he had an underwear fetish. So he would break into homes at first and he'd steal women's undergarments. And he had so much underwear that it was said that he went to his, uh, when his wife was at work, he had burned the underwear in his backyard. Jerry Brudos had a foot fetish. And again, all these things uh, occurred during childhood. Jerry Brudos's mother always wanted to have a daughter and would always talk to Jerry when he was a little boy saying these things to him. Look, I wish you were a girl. I can't believe you turned out to be a boy. So what Jerry would do is uh, he would go into his mom's bedroom and steal her high heels. And he'd walk around in her high heels when he was four and five and six years old. Mom was furious about this. She took the high heels brought him to her room and threatened him if he ever did it again then you know she would beat him you know pretty badly but of course he did it and then this time she had thrown the high heels out the garbage all jerry did was go into the garbage and get the high heels and he had so many high heels that were hidden in his room of course in the very end he ends up killing uh, his victims and he uh, has them hanging from the rafters and guess what they have on their feet high heels of course, he in, 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 of course he was known to have a foot fetish as well. Bundy uh, was a necrophiliac. Uh, he liked uh, you know the body to be dead, and uh, he also preferred to have sex in that manner as well, uh, which was later reported by one of his girlfriends uh, that he liked to have sex in that manner where they were passed out, not even moving and not even breathing. Um, so you know you certainly want to look at these. Uh, multiple deviancies and, and certainly because uh, there's possibly other certainly crimes that are committed. And, uh, you know, and again, I, I go back to Boyer, um, you know, these serial rapists and serial killers, they, they all have, in my experience, they all have, uh, they, they've, they've peaked in their early teens. 
you know, even to early adulthood. But you can't say, obviously, that all voyeurs are, um, you know, going to commit additional crimes because there's just so many voyeurs. Um, there's millions of voyeurs that are out there, and uh, you just can't say that. And this is a very rare type of crime, uh, obviously serial killing. So, um, you know, so um, now, do you feel that um, as far as the serial, ra- you talked about serial rapists and serial murderers sort of having uh, similarities, I guess, in um, in their in their actions, their desire, the possession, the control. So would you say it would be, I guess, very, I don't, I don't want to use the word normal, but that it, uh, someone to be a serial rapist moving to being a serial killer is not a far stretch. The commonalities in both these predators is certainly voyeurism, the peeping. Uh, but, you know, again, you can't say all voyeurs will progress to this type of crime or other, you know, really or any criminal activity just because of the sheer volume of voyeurs, as I was saying before. Um, with that being said, in, in my experience, both do actually have that background in peeping, and they have a similar thought process, and that thought process centers around this key word, and it's deception. Um, and their belief system is pretty primitive in that they believe that women are deceptive, they don't see what they mean, and they enjoy making men look bad. Pretty much if you understand that premise with these individuals as primitive as it is, then you really understand the thought process of a serial rapist and a serial killer that's targeting women specifically. Um, And, you know, certainly giving you a couple examples. One example really sticks out is that working with these guys in the prison system, and if you really want to call it working with them, I mean, you're you're trying to kind of not cure them, but you're trying to get them to substitute their uh, behaviors that they have obviously have done before into more acceptable behavior, you know, obviously. Uh, so uh, we're, we're basically learning uh, you know, behavioral strategies on what to do. So, you know, so we're not really curing them, but uh, I had in, in, in my office, I had a photo, just, you know, a benign photo. It was a worker's comp picture of a, she was a young female corrections officer who it looked like she had injured herself pretty bad. And there was a 1-800 number on the bottom for a worker's comp. So it was a worker's comp photo. And I had a group of inmates that were in there and they were all sex offenders. And, you know, I had mixed actually, which normally you're not supposed to do, but, you know, we had done it anyway because um, we had pressure to start up this uh, sex offender group. So we had some pedophiles in there as long and also serial rapists that victimized adults. So, uh, one of these serial rapists that was staring at the uh, picture and I called him out on it. And I says, you know, to him, you know, what are you looking at? And he says, well, this is what I'm talking about. And he seemed to get pretty irritated. And I had no idea where he was going, uh, you know, but he says, she's, you know, she's really not hurt. She's faking it. And she's cheating the state out of a hundred thousand dollars. And she's the reason why I can't have a damn ping pong table. And, you know, the other inmates, especially, well, the, the, the serial, the other serial rapist, you know, certainly didn't say anything. And then the pedophile kind of uh, chimed in and, you know, the, the targeting children and says, I don't see that at all. And I said, of course you don't. I mean, you're not. And then another guy uh, that I had asked because he had raped a young woman 
after she didn't dance with him, he actually waited until the next morning uh, and she came out of her home and he raped her. And I asked him, I said, would you have raped her if she danced with you? And he thought about it for a minute and he says, no, nah, I would have raped her anyway. And I said, why? She would have danced with you. I mean, you know, if she danced with you, why would you rape her? He says, because she's nothing but a tease. So it's almost, you know, again, it's almost like a lose-lose situation. So the hallmark is deception. Uh, for example, with, with Bundy as a serial killer, uh, you know, he, he worked himself with, up with so much anger and so much disdain uh, for women that he perceived didn't want him. So they were deceiving him because he believed that all women should want him. And if they don't want him, he's going to take them from the people that may have a chance to get them. So essentially, it's, it's, it's a revenge against society. That's really what was happening with him. And then again, the cornerstone being deception. So if you understand that concept with a serial rapist that's targeting strangers or women in a serial killer that's start targeting strangers, that hallmark of deception, then you definitely, you know, have more of an understanding of this type of, of both these type of predators. And the last one is, is and, and I'm, it's only two words. So you got deception and you got recognition. So the aspect of recognition is another one. And we know that serial rapists and especially serial killers alike enjoy using sort of a hands-on approach when they kill uh, their, their victims, whether it's manual strangulation or even, of course, blunt force trauma, stabbing. Um, of course, the most is, 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 is um, asphyxiation. Uh, when you do that act, the act in and of itself is sexually gratifying for these predators because at that moment they are recognized. And both of them enjoy that aspect of it. They enjoy the hunt. They enjoy the entry. They enjoy the closeness. See, when they have their arms wrapped around the victim, you know, even in a stabbing attack, a, a strangulation, they, they are close in proximity to the victim. So they get to hear if it's a stabbing, the gurgling, the crying for pain. These are all aspects of sadism, but the hallmark with both of these uh, predators alike is the recognition. That's really what they're looking for. And of course it's sexualized. Well, with all the different research that you've done, I know that you know, you've, you've uh, authored two books and uh, one many years ago, one more current. Uh, so your first book, uh, Murder by Numbers, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what's in that, what type of research was going on, things you were doing at that time. That was, uh, it, it's sort of like sort of a beginning type to the new one, The Mortal Desire. Uh, so the first time that I really was introduced to that pathology. Uh, so I, uh, you know, for, for the most part, would, would kind of glean my experiences from dealing with this type of predator and uh, uh, put it down, you know, in, in, into paper, of course, not mentioning names. I was also work that I did with violent juveniles um, at that time, too. I, I was working with the public defender's office in, in Miami that was jointly working with uh, the Juvenile Sentencing Project. It was a grant that really what we were trying to do is to help these kids to kind of divert them. So in a sense, they didn't become <laughs> like a Ted Bundy, you know, that kind right. of thing. So. Um, so a lot of that, a lot of the murder by numbers had, you know, things to do with my experiences, 
uh, working with not just the violent inmates, but violent, you know, some of these violent juveniles as well. And, um, you know, some of my thoughts on why they did what they, or why they do what they do. And I had some, you know, other, a lot of influences from other folks uh, as well, you know, in, in that book. And the moral desire is essentially like a, a, it, it's, um, it's, 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 but it's, uh, um, I get probably in a little bit more depth, I would say, at some of these, uh, what, what these guys have done. And I don't, again, I utilize different, you know, nobody, nobody's name is mentioned in the book, but, uh, um, you know, it talks about some of these horrific things that they've done and the psychological background of these individuals and uh, kind of puzzling putting these, these pieces together and uh, going over with why potentially these individuals have done the things that they've done. And there's an appendix that I have in, in, in the book as well that has some of these sexual deviancies of what the description is and actually cases that law enforcement, you know, has, has come across, uh, you know, these strange type of things that really are undescribable. I mean, I could give you sort of one example that kind of pops in my, in my mind where a guy was um, wearing female undergarments and wearing combat boots and he was destroying cars. He was jumping on top of cars. Uh, that would be more deemed sort of a crush fetish. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times with the crush fetish, animals are utilized. Um, and some videos, you know, have been made, uh, you know, depicting that. It's really horrific stuff. Uh, but this was involving actually a vehicle, a guy. Uh, but you, what you'll see is you'll see, and in the book I talk about it, uh, that there's usually more, any sex crimes detective, I challenge anybody, that they, they usually have more than one deviancy. It's never just one. And I, you know, I, I hate using the word never, but I have not found, I have not found one time where it's just one. If you dig further into the case that you have, they're going to have, uh, you know, three, four, sometimes five deviancies. And why is this important? It's important because obviously there's other, there's potentially even likely other crimes that have been committed, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, paying attention to that. And, and, and I talk specifically in the new book, Mortal Desire, about animal cruelty and um, really what you truly want to look for in that when you're, when you're looking at that more closely and assessing violence uh, potentially against humans. And the way that it's important to understand it is that an animal that has a limbic system uh, that can, and that's part of our brain that sort of emanates emotion. So if you step on somebody's foot, they're going to say, ouch, ouch, that, you know, and, and you know, if you uh, do something to an animal, they're going to, if it's a dog, it's going to yelp, a cat's going to meow or what have you. Um, and essentially the perpetrator is ignoring those cries for pain and is going on and committing, you know, these crimes. I, I against the, against the, animal. Uh, rest assured, especially when we're talking about violent bestiality, rest assured, I have not had a case yet where the individual was not thinking about a human. The only time I ever had that was in a prison where the guy was off his medication. He was apparently schizophrenic. So it gives you an idea. They're not sexually attracted to the animal. What they're doing is they're imagining doing it to human being. And that's why you have to really take this seriously. And, you know, and, and kind of a sort of an example I'll give to you, 
you know, you know, I do these homicide conferences. You know, that's one of the things I do. And I remember this was out in Louisiana. Um, I had a question where a young kid was driving around his bike around a parish with different cat heads on his bike. You know, when the mayor, remember those old mongooses back in the day, Dan? Remember? Right, right. Yeah, you know, you have the mirror and it was kind of this guy, this kid ripped off the mirror and was was using these cat heads as trophies. And they were different cat heads. He's riding around the neighborhood to shock the, the people with these cat heads. So, you know, the guy, you know, the, the, the investigator come up to me and asked me, Dr. Simon, how dangerous is this guy? Well, you <laughs> ask two questions. Number one, you got to ask, were these cats dead when he found them? And if they weren't dead, how is he killing them? What is he exactly is he doing? So come to find out, he was actually using you know, those clothes hangers. Uh, those, those uh, what are they called again, where you do the laundry in the back? Uh, the you talk about the metal, this the metal hook hangers. The clip, yeah, the, the laundry clip. Yeah, what he was doing was he was uh, using the clip on the cat's tail and stabbing the cats and basically gutting them and cutting their heads off and using them as trophies. Now, I, I like to be a guy that shoots straight from the hip. So, you know, I, I'll shoot straight from the hip and say, hey, that's coming to your doorstep. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's 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 not going away. Yeah, that, uh, and, I, and I essentially will, will, will tell them that. I, you know, I, I shoot them straight from the hip on that. And then, uh, because, again, the more questions that needed to be answered were answered. Uh, that means that that individual ignored those cries for pain because that cat was meowing. Uh, and, and essentially we, we call it rehearsal. Uh, you, you know, it, it's sort of rehearsing for what, you know, possibly in this case is likely to come to someone's doorstep. I had a guy that uh, was raping, I don't know if I, you know, showed it in my class or who knows, but, uh, you know, he ended up uh, raping an, an animal, uh, might have been a pig or a dog or what have you, but they interviewed him and he was thinking about raping women. He was very open about it. Uh, even got specific enough to where he would describe the genitals being the exact same thing as, as, a, as, a, as a woman's. So, you know, again, when you, when you talk about these, and I, and I do, I mention these types of things in, in, in the book, uh, but again, I always caution everyone, not every single individual is harming animals, although a great proportion is. There's definitely a correlative factor that you could say that, yeah, a lot of these guys have a background of abusing, you know, animals. They certainly do, specifically the, the serial sex murderers, but again, not all of them. So, uh, you know, I'm always, because not everyone that I've interviewed has done that. So, um, Well, it does seem that there's, there's a link between, you know, certainly past behaviors as you talk, precursors that you're looking for, whether animal cruelty, whether it's as uh, a suspicious behavior or breaking into houses for, undergarments or uh, just peeping Tom type activity. And then, and it certainly also uh, appears a strong factor is uh, uh, relationships with either caregivers, families, those type of things. And, and uh, sort of their background history. I mean, uh, it doesn't appear very often that you find someone who doesn't have some history in the past of things that were affecting them that, that lead to, uh, this criminal type behavior because we all we all certainly have a past the difference though between um, I believe that these type of predators and us is that we have 
you know, the tools and, and believe it or not, some of these tools, you know, and they're looking at this much more with regards to research is brain pathology. You know, what literally is going on, you know, in, inside our, our brains, as well as how we're able to navigate, you know, around these stressors, because we all have stressors. We all have childhood uh, types of trauma. No, nobody that I've ever met had a father, even though maybe on the surface they might have looked like that, but this might actually show my true age, Dan. But uh, nobody had Ward Cleaver, you know, as a as a dad. I mean, you know, as the perfect uh, mother, as the perfect father. I mean, it just doesn't you know, that that doesn't exist. Um, but here's the, the the key, you know, really with um, with these serial killers, which I've actually seen talking about their biopsychosocial history is that they really had inconsistent type parenting um, where they didn't know one day they're getting in the house, whether they're going to get, you know, hit, uh, whether they're going to get kicked out, whether they're going to, you know, get yelled at or whether they're going to be ridiculed. Um, they just don't know. They, they have sort of, you know, they just don't know what they're going to get from one day or the next. And another thing is, which you can't take for granted, and none of this certainly and I always want to use that disclaimer, none of this is going to, you know, just because you don't have this in your household doesn't mean that you're going to end up being a Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. Uh, but the relationship with mom, because we're talking about serial sex murderers usually target women. They're usually male. And uh, of course, children are in there as well. Um, but the relationship with the female caregiver with, with mom, and we call it an object relations theory, which, uh, you know, it's, it's relations with the, with the parents, with the, you know, caregivers, uh, how important that is. Um, you know, the concept of mirroring. And, uh, I remember just to kind of give you real quick, I remember when I was down in the basement, I was talking to a death row inmate and I talked about how, when I would come back on my trips or even come home from work, I'd pick up my daughter and she was like three years old at the time. Now I can't pick her up, but, uh, when she was when she was three, I'd pick her up and she she'd she'd see the love in my eyes, and then you know that love would be reflected back. That's what mirroring is. So essentially, it's recognition. So when we talk about when these, let's say, from from what I would find is that these individuals that have their arms wrapped around their victim's neck, one of the things I'll ask them: What are you experiencing at that time, at that moment? And they'll answer it. Uh, you know, just like it was occurring yesterday, uh, where their eyes, their pupil, they'll, they'll say things that their eyes fade. I like when their eyes fade, your pupils fade. I like hearing as they gasp for their last breath. I like to hear them shake. Uh, you know, I like the way they look at me, you know. So, you know, they, they talk about this as being just, just they can't even put it in the words, uh, you know, how much power and how much gratification that gives them uh, even to the point where they might even ask you which one guy you know asked me he goes think of the most exhilarating thing that you've ever done in your life that's what it's like killing so they're uh, certainly putting it in uh, to their own words and, and again talking about their childhood history they're certainly missing uh, from what i've seen is that mirroring. I guess the best defense, I know it sounds cliche, Dan, but the best defense 
that I would give anybody and say to any day of the week from what I've seen and in interviewing these guys down in the basement or down, you know, just working in closed management settings in general with extraordinarily sexually violent men. The best advice I can give a parent or any parent is to love your child. Love your child. Well, and we appreciate uh, your writings. We appreciate your teaching and just all the, uh, uh, abuse that you put yourself through in many times that uh, we talk about the same as 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 detectives that uh you know we we like solving the puzzles we like taking our knowledge and using that for a good purpose of solving that puzzle but uh by all means you uh, just the same as us expose yourself to uh a lot of information that most of the public uh, never gets to hear uh, would never want to hear and for the most part we we don't want to hear a lot of it either and anytime uh um, I appreciate you know all the work you're doing, and, uh, and obviously I'm uh, you know pro law enforcement, and uh, you know 95 percent of my clientele. And you're right, the things that uh, you know we're, we're you know, put ourselves through, and what I what I've seen is that a lot of times you know we're, we're not really known for our successes. And I say you know, uh, and and you know some of the work that in in my experience, you know that I that I learn from the detectives. It's just unbelievable work that, that they're doing. And, and you talk about putting them, you know, putting themselves through uh, some of these uh, uh, toxic type of environments. And it's just, it's just amazing. And I've met so many people and again, such as yourself, Dan and, and folks from around the country and even, you know, uh, lecturing in front of folks from around the world. And uh, the, the thought process really is, is similar. I mean, when I presented uh, class, you know, it, it was the International Women's Association for Police, and there were some different countries that were in there listening to my presentation. And, you know, you could see they had some translators, but you could see that they were nodding their heads and understanding, meaning that, that it's just, you know, the, the thought process is, is, a, is a global type one, uh, whereas they understand childhood trauma, understanding that trauma is perceptual, um, understanding that these things kind of do begin in and things like that. And, uh, but again, it's just a blessing for me to work around, you know, these folks. To me, I'm blessed. So um, I'm talking about, you know, obviously working around law enforcement and being around them, it, it, you know, it really is a blessing for me. Well, thank you again. And I appreciate your time. And, and certainly whenever you're in Houston, uh, we'd love to get together and maybe uh, have another interview. Oh, I'd love to.